Our New Testament reading comes from Hebrews 10, verses 1 through 14. Since the law has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered year after year, make perfect those who approach. Otherwise, they, would they not have ceased being offered since the worshipers cleansed once for all would no longer have any consciousness of sin? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin year after year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, See, I have come to do your will, O God. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, see, I have come to do your will. He abolishes the first in order to establish the second. And it is by God's will that we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands day after day at his service, offering again and again for the same sacrifices that can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, and since then has been waiting until his enemies would be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. The word of the Lord. Our Old Testament reading comes from Psalm 40, which is on page 452 in your pew Bibles. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the desolate pit, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Happy are those who make the Lord their trust, who do not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after false gods. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. Were I to proclaim and tell of them, they would be more than can be counted. Sacrifice and offering you do not desire, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, here I am. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O oh my God. Your law is within my heart. 
I have told of the glad news of deliverance in the congregation. See, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your saving help within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. Do not, O Lord, withhold your mercy from me. Let your steadfast love and your faithfulness keep me safe forever. For evils have encompassed me without number. My iniquities have overtaken me until I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head, and my heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let all those be put to shame and confusion who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who desire my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha, aha, but may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. O God, you are our help and our deliverer. In this moment, we pray that you would not delay that Holy Spirit, you would be present to stir our affections, to open our ears and our eyes, to see, to hear, and that we might live knowing the love that you have for us, the love made evident to us in the Son become flesh. Oh Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, on this second Sunday of Advent, we are turning to the 40th Psalm because the author of Hebrews tells us that it was this Psalm, Psalm 40, that the Son of God quoted on the eve of his incarnation. The author of Hebrews is is quoting from the Septuagint, the the Greek translation of the Old Testament, when he quotes Jesus quoting Psalm 40. He writes, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, see, God, I have come to do your will, O God. The scene imagined here, painted for us in the book of Hebrews is truly remarkable. One can imagine the Son of God looking down on the earth on the eve of his incarnation and speaking with his Father, whom he's about to leave. They're discussing what lies ahead of him, the mission that is prepared for him, the responsibility that has fallen to him on account of humanity's rebellion. The Father has prepared for him a body so that in the flesh, the Son of God might redeem those whose flesh has been corrupted by death. 
He enters the world to faithfully fulfill the will of God as a human being and so draw humanity out of the pit into which they have descended. And he will accomplish this redemption of humanity through his own double descent, first into the flesh and secondly into the grave. During his time in the flesh, Jesus will prove obedient even under the cross where he will offer himself as a sacrifice in order that we might be forgiven. We benefit from the many sacrifices that Christ makes. As he descends, we rise. By quoting Psalm 40 on the eve of his incarnation, there's a a certain permission that Jesus grants us to go to this psalm to better understand his mission in the incarnation from the context of the entire psalm and not just the quoted section. And taking that permission, we turn this morning to Psalm 40, where we find a psalm that has been written in response to some experience of deliverance. I waited patiently for the Lord, the psalm begins. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the desolate pit, out of the miry bog, and has set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. This is the story of a person, a man who has been delivered from darkness, from danger. And we're not told the nature of this desolate pit or this miry bog he refers to. Could be a pit of his own making. It could be a pit into which he had innocently fallen. The language for both of these possibilities is present in the psalm. In verse 12, the psalmist writes, Evils have encompassed me without number. And in the next breath, he links this misfortune with his sin. Evils have encompassed me without number. My iniquities have overtaken me until I cannot see. They're more than the hairs of my head and my heart fails me. Here the psalmist admits his fault, his complicity for the position in which he finds himself. He shares the blame. While in verses 14 through 15, the psalmist also appears to be the victim of outside oppression. Let all those be put to shame and confusion who seek to snatch away my life, he writes. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who desire my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, aha, aha. The desolate pit, the miry bog, these are highly transferable images. It can be a mess of your own making or the mess of another's making. The language and images are highly transferable. And by including both possibilities in the psalm, again, the author is giving anyone who reads this psalm permission to take these words, this prayer, into their mouth and pray it for themselves. It's a hymn of gratitude to be sung whenever God draws you out of a desolate pit, a miry bog. Of course, one experience of Deliverance does not mean an end to all future trouble. The psalmist readily acknowledges this in verse 11 and in verse 13, where already having experienced God's help, he continues to ask for future help. Do not, O Lord, withhold your mercy from me. 
Let your steadfast love and your faithfulness keep me forever. And in verse 13, be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Here the the psalmist approaches life soberly and with humility. He knows, as one commentator wrote, that life is one long trouble. And in his moment of joy, he does not forget his God or his ongoing need of him. Pits and bogs still lie ahead. God does not spare us that in this life. As St. Augustine said, even after the experiences of God's deliverance, there will come days of tribulations and of greater tribulations. Let no one promise himself what the gospel does not promise. See, the gospel does not promise the removal of all suffering in this life, but it does promise a God who who will be present with you in the suffering and in time lead you into an eternal life where suffering will indeed cease. The gospel promises a God who has suffered in the flesh himself. And if then he suffered and has endured, then surely he will be a help to us and can even lead us out of our experience of pain. Life, therefore, is marked and measured by experiences of of suffering and deliverance. It's not a steady, smooth climb to eternity, but full of falls and failures met with the embrace and healing touch of a Savior who descended far deeper than any of us ever will. No matter how low you are feeling, Christ descended yet deeper. He is down there to pick you up on the way to resurrection. As Psalm 139 asks of God, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to the heaven, if I go up, there you are. If I make my bed in Sheol, if I go down, there you are. If I take the wings of the morning and settle at the farthest limits of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, your right hand shall hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light around me become night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light to you. The darkness is as light to Jesus. Your darkness that you sit in is as light to Jesus. He sees you in it. He is able to lead you through it. He is able to lend his light so that you too can see and think straight and taste taste joy once again. The experience of his salvation and his help is intended to to secure our souls for himself and the souls of any who will listen to our story of deliverance. Certainly captured the soul of the psalmist and he gives us the language and behavior appropriate for those who have likewise been captured by the goodness of God, by the experience of his light in our darkness. The psalmist, having tasted the salvation of God, does not restrain his lips. He lets them flow. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your saving help within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the, from the great congregation. 
The, the experience of salvation compels the psalmist to speak. Psalmist does not hide his story of deliverance, but knows that it was partially for this very purpose that God has saved him. God redeems the saints, not only for themselves, but for the world. We are his lips in a world that needs to hear of him and his love. Shall we silence him by keeping our lips shut? God has put a new song in our mouths to sing to the world. With every act of salvation and help, God is putting a new song into our mouths and we are called to sing of his glory. Therefore, on the one hand, the psalmist does not hold back his tongue from telling of God's salvation. While on the other hand, God's salvation also compels him to show restraint, not of his lips in speaking of God's glory, but of his desire to seek his own. Following God necessarily includes self-denial, but when you, des- when you see the, the descent of God to us and his love in raising us up, then you can be assured that his will for us, our self-denial is for our good. St. Irenaeus has famously said that the glory of God is a human being fully alive. His will is our good. And so the psalmist, having had his soul purchased by God, in verse 8 says that he delights to do God's will. His soul is one that has purchased, been purchased by God, and he now lives in submission to him in both word and deed. Submission to Jesus Christ is the greatest freedom, the greatest joy of any human being. Submission and humility are what God has always sought from humanity. Long before the sacrificial system was put in place, this is what he desired. And so even after the sacrificial system was established, he continued to seek submission and humility more than sacrifice. In Psalm 51, the psalmist writes, You will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And in 1 Samuel 15, we read, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. Psalm 40 repeats this priority of obedience over sacrifice in verse 6. Sacrifice and offering you do not desire, but you have given me an open ear. In response to his salvation, the psalmist recognizes that he has not only a new soul, but new ears, open ears to listen and to hear the law of God, which God demands of those whom he has purchased by his love. We do not earn God's love by our goodness. Our goodness does not precede his love, but we do express our gratitude for God's love through our obedience by restraining our desires and will in order to act in ways that are in alignment with God's will for us. This is why he has redeemed us. But we obey God imperfectly, and we live in a world in which God is is scarcely obeyed. Our gratitude is fleeting. Our thanksgiving is either late or absent altogether, and so the law of God, which is supposed to be our guide, is simultaneously our condemnation. 
God gives us ears to hear and eyes to see, and we're able to sense only our need of a Savior. With renewed hearing and vision, we begin to understand that our greatest problems are not circumstantial. Our deepest pit and our miriest bog is a prevailing one that persists even after our circumstances are resolved. Our biggest trouble is the corruption of sin, the natural state of humanity after our rebellion in the garden. From our fallen position, all our circumstantial troubles arise, and until our brokenness is addressed, we will only ever know a life that is one long trouble. We need redemption far beyond our latest source of anxiety or pain. We need systemic healing. And this is precisely the reason why God prepared a body for his son, in order to provide a prevailing redemption that produces persistent hope and joy underneath the tumultuous circumstances of life. His redemption softens and tempers our experience of this broken world. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 4 that when confronted with death, we do not grieve as those who have no hope because we know that for the Christian, death is not the end of the story, but just the last cruelty of Satan before we enter into the glorious embrace of our God. Paul does not say we don't grieve. Of course we grieve. Death is unnatural. Jesus himself grieved the death of his friend Lazarus. We, he wept bitterly, even though he knew he would raise him. Death is a corruption of God's good creation. Therefore, we grieve whenever it happens, and yet we grieve with the confidence of a hope that tempers our grief, the hope that in Christ life follows after death. Jesus offered himself, as Hebrews says, as a once for all final sacrifice in order to deliver humanity from death. He died as a human being in order that humanity might be forgiven. This was the mission he discussed with his father on the eve of his incarnation. The scene captured for us in Hebrews. He came to redeem humanity in a body, not from our circumstantial troubles, but from the prevailing pit of sin and death into which we have fallen. Therefore, whatever you are experiencing in life, whether your circumstances are easy or are hard or bleak, Jesus has given us reason to sing this psalm daily, this song of gratitude. He has purchased our souls and in his flesh reconciled us back to our God and our Father. The Son of God has returned to his Father, having completed his mission on earth, and he brings us with him as sons and daughters of the Father, a people who have been redeemed from the pit and drawn out of the miry bog. Forever we will sing this song of redemption and praise in his presence. And so daily we practice it now in preparation for eternity. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.